Last week, we spoke about some critical concepts, and the main concept we spoke about last week was the notion of God. And I just wanted to go into one aspect of that, again, uh, in terms of that, and just clarify that. The basic idea that I was trying to uh, make out last week was that the most important aspect in a person's life is really to establish an understanding of what it means to be human versus what it means to be divine. And that doesn't mean in a deeply philosophical sense, but it's really to accept what it means to have human limitations. And that's not easy, because all of us want to break those human limitations and think of ourselves in much more grandiose terms than what we normally are. As I've said, the concept is that basically God is beyond any concept in which we can imagine, and He exists in a way which is totally different than everyone else. Therefore, ultimately, it's impossible for us to really talk about God or describe Him. Thus, prayer, in many ways, is artificial, you see. And in a certain sense, it's not true, because it's not actually describing what God is. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we should not pray? No. On the contrary. What God says is that you are human, and therefore you must do the best you can in terms of praying to me. So therefore, you are allowed to use certain words to describe me, you are allowed to what? Use certain types of terms in order to relating me, and so on and so forth. This is permissible. And what God says on the contrary, I wait to hear your prayers. Why? And when we mean prayers, we don't mean pure meditation. Even though the most accurate way to pray to God is to be silent, in a sense. But nevertheless, the sages have created specific types of what? Of statements that are extremely powerful in praying to God. And what God said is, I want you to pray to me through the prayers which were instituted. Why? Because by praying me through these ways, you will be accepting the fact that you and I are partners. And you will be saying, all I can do is try and attempt, but I need your help to truly achieve and succeed. Therefore, all of life is a partnership between you and God in whatever endeavor you have. The more you acknowledge that partnership, the greater will be your success in things that you do. The less you acknowledge it, you see, then the more you have to deal with what? Vulnerability to total failure and basically an incorrect way of looking at the world. What I'd like to do now is talk about what it means to be human. We have said man is not divine. And because man is not divine, you ultimately do not have the power to do anything, really. We cannot really create, we cannot really do things in a real sense. Everything is given to us by the power of God itself. Even our thoughts come into our minds, you see, and we become aware of what we are thinking. But we don't actually know where to go to find the thought, you see. What we do is we kind of open our minds up and a thought pops in. And we grab that thought and we think that we've created it. But all we really do is we become aware of whatever passes in front of our minds. It's almost like we're watching a movie. Consciousness in a certain sense is like watching a movie. Where we kind of sit back and just like watch what goes through our minds. We kind of observe our feelings and our thoughts and our sensations. And many times we find ourselves with feelings and thoughts and ideas where we don't know where they came from. We don't know why we're having them even. Which shows you, you see, the poor amount of control you actually have over the internal processes of the mind. 
the question that we have to ask is then what is the uniqueness of being a human? <coughs> and today I'd like to talk about that being a human being is an extraordinary, extraordinary experience being a human being in many ways is a parallel to being God-like it is the most, the most powerful thing that God ever made was the, a man a human being male or female but the human is the greatest of all God's creation now you may say why is that? there's an interesting expression I once read the mind which encompasses the universe is greater than the universe which encompasses the mind what does that mean? if you look out in the universe for example you will see that there are hundreds of billions of stars there are hundreds of billions of galaxies and each galaxy which is a collection of stars has over a hundred billion stars if you look at any one star for example like the sun you will see that its temperature is something like 50 to 60 million degrees you have an idea we get hot when it runs over 100 degrees you have an idea what it means to be in a situation an environment which is 50 million degrees obviously you will exist as, as a vapor that's all you can be the fact of the matter is the sun is a medium sized star and there are hundreds of billions of stars, stars like this but if you look at the sun and you compare the sun to yourself and I, you ask yourself who is greater I or the sun you see in one standpoint the sun is greater because look at all that energy and all that power you are minuscule compared to the energy of the sun but from another standpoint you are much greater than the sun why? in fact there's not even a comparison the sun is greater than you quantitatively it has more energy than you but qualitatively you are vastly superior to the sun to the entire universe why is that? because you can say I am and the sun cannot the sun has no consciousness it is not aware that it is a sun the earth is not aware that it is a planet it has no idea that it's a, it is an inanimate object that's all it is it is an it an it IT that's all it is it is an it an it an it no matter how powerful it is has no sense of itself in any way but you as small as you are with respect to the planets and with respect to the sun and the universe you are what's called an I I don't mean an I E-Y-E but an I because you can say I the ability to say I is an incredible ability an incredible ability why? let's examine this for a second what did God do when He first created the world? What did He do? He was there alone, alone in the world. Now God is conscious of Himself. In whatever way He exists, in however that is, He is conscious of Himself. God can say, I am, you see. Now when God created the world, He created, for example, the universe. The universe is child's play to God in a certain sense, because no matter how powerful it is, it is nothing more than a series of objects but you know how difficult it is for God to create another being with its own consciousness would have the ability to say I am and turn around to God and say I am and you are that is the most difficult thing of all why? when God created you He created a being that knows itself and is for itself 
in that sense it is separate from God in your state of mind is there anything which shares your consciousness? no for example each one of you in the room has a certain sense of himself that sense of self that you have is unique to each and every one of you there is no one in all existence that shares it it is your ego it is your sense of self and it belongs to you and only you nothing shares that at all in certain sense even God in a certain sense doesn't even share that it is something which is even in a certain way outside of God your ability to look at God and say you and I means that there must be some aspect of you which is separated from him and outside of him now I don't know if you realize that that's the most incredible thing of all because if God is pure existence how can anything be outside of him you see that's the point now the truth of the matter is in many ways you are not outside obviously but if there is anything that has achieved some level of separation if at all it is you every other object has no separation to God basically except the human being or the conscious mind because the conscious mind is a separate entity because it can say me versus everything else out there there's what's me and there's everything else which is not me that me is separate from all existence including God that is the most profound thing that God made because the question is how can God make such a thing how do you make something which is outside of yourself which is beyond you you see but in order for God to create a conscious mind another conscious mind which is able to look at him and to say you and me he has to create something which is in a certain sense even outside of him do you see the point do you understand the concept it's a subtle thing that's why to create a conscious mind is the most staggering creation of all everything the entire creation of the world pales in insignificance compared to what it is easier for God you see to create all of reality than to create one conscious mind now of course ultimately God creates all of it you see and when I say easy or difficult to create I'm, I don't really mean literally nothing is difficult or hard for God to do but what I'm saying is we're talking about status the most sophisticated creation that God has ever done is the human mind, the conscious mind why? because it, it is something which is the most outside of God and that's what constitutes true power that which is furthest from God along with the conscious mind comes something else and it's called free will now let's examine what that concept of free will is we say that God is free does God have free will? the answer is of course God can do anything he wants why can God do anything he wants? why? because basically there is nothing beyond God there is nothing outside of God which is out in some way separated from him which can tell him what to do since he is all of existence there is nothing which in any sense can force him or compel him to do something there is nothing outside of God even existence itself since he is existence therefore God is absolutely free you see there is no control there is no supervision on him there is no boss there is no parent there is no creator there is nothing therefore God is totally free 
Now the question is, what about you? You have a conscious mind, you see. But are you free? No, of course not. How can you be free to choose what you want to and what you don't? It is impossible. Why? Because since you depend on God for existence, you are basically what? Compelled to do what God wants. Period. It's not that, for example, you could even defy Him. You don't even know, for example, that what you want to do is what He wants. The wills are so closely merged that you wouldn't even know when it's Him and when it's you, actually, if you are part of His creation. Everything which God created, everything, has no free will, nothing, except the human being. God says to the human being, I give you free will. Now let's understand this first of all. We have divided all of existence into two types of categories. Everything in the world is either an it, an object, or an I. That which has a conscious mind. Do we understand that? These are the two things which pervade all reality. The only thing which is an I, which has a conscious mind, are souls, you see, and also angels. Angels also have the ability to say I. They know themselves, they know that they are angels. Just like we know that we are people. Nothing else has that ability. But even if you have this ability, you have this ability to be alert and aware of yourself, you see, as separate from everything else, that doesn't mean you have free will. Because since you are connected to God by virtue of existence, you are compelled to do what He wants. So God turns around to the human being and says, I'm going to separate you further, even from the angels. Not only is the human separated from all of reality, because it is a conscious mind separate from animate ob- inanimate objects, which are it. But God says, I will also give the human free will, and angels do not have free will. Now let's examine the notion of free will. Exactly, what does that mean, free will? Free will means the following. God says to you, the following. You see these two? This is a red colored, what do you call it, marker. And this is a purple colored marker. God says to you, you can choose whichever marker you want. I'm going to put them down in front of you. You can either choose the red, or you can choose the purple. And God says the following, Your choice of whatever you want to do is free. I will not control it or determine that. Now we ask ourselves the question, how is that possible? What does that mean? If you, if your entire being comes from God, then how is it possible for you to be free of God and simply make a decision that has nothing to do with Him? When God says that I am going to make you, give you the ability to free will, God is saying the following, I am going to give you the ability to choose and there will be nothing in all of existence that will compel you to go one way or the other. That's what it means. You see, when God says you are free, you are free. What that means is that there is nothing which will compel you to go to this side or to go to that side. In all of existence, there is not a force, there is not an impulse, there is not a being or an object which will force you either way. So if it will not force you, where does the decision come from? The decision comes from you, your internal essence, from the ego, absolutely from yourself. It materializes from within you. And it has nothing to do with anything in existence. That's what it means to be free. But how is this possible? 
How is it possible, you see, for you to make a free choice and not be compelled by anything existence? The only way for that to be possible is that you would have to be beyond all of existence. Even God. You see, this is the problem. But what God says is an amazing thing. I guarantee you that you are free. When God says that you are free, in essence what He said is that I give you a power which no other being has. With respect to the choice that you make, you are beyond existence. Even to some, in a way, not exactly, but even in a way beyond myself. You see, it has to be that way. Now we do not understand the connection between us and God in terms of how God frees us to literally be beyond Him in a way and yet we're not free because we still depend on Him for existence. There is some kind of a strange type of what interaction. It's like a, a marginal issue. And we do not understand, I don't know if we ever will, to understand what, how is it that we can be outside of God and yet inside of Him at the same time in the sense that He is still part of us. That's a very difficult question to answer, surely for not for this class. But what I do want you to know is the following. That when God says that you are free, He means it. And what He means is, what that means is that God is saying, you are outside of all existence in that choice. Even in the existence that I compel. That is an extraordinary power. Because the ultimate power of reality is freedom. Real freedom. That which is free is the most powerful thing of all. Why is God so great? Because He's totally free. That's what defines Him. To be totally free, you must be God. Why? Because to be totally free, it means that there is nothing behind you at all. You therefore must be the end of all reality. If God says that we are free, in some way He has allowed us to duplicate Him or parallel Him in some way. When it says that man was created in the image of God, it means in these two respects. It means in the fact that one, we are conscious like God is conscious. We are not an object, you see. But we know that we are and also that we are free. So in this respect, we are like little gods in a way. We are not God as He is. We cannot create. We don't control the force of existence. Not at all. We have to be created. So in that sense, we are not gods, obviously. But in one small sense, God says, I'm going to make you like me. In one sense. And what sense is that? In the sense that you are conscious and that you are free to choose between the red and the purple marker. And when God says free, He means really free. This is not a game. That's what it means to be a human being. Nothing in all of creation has that power. Even the greatest of all angels, you see, who are astounding in terms of their power, are nothing compared to a human being. The highest of all angels, Michael, Michal, and Gabriel, and Matak, all of them are insignificant next to a human being. Why? Because they are not free. And if you are not free, you are nothing more than a glorified machine. That's it. You see, if you are not free, you are nothing more than a robot. You may be an incredible robot, mm -hmm. and a huge robot, but you are no more what? Sophisticated than the sun. The sun is a robot. It must behave the way it does through natural law. It cannot transcend its nature. 
Freedom of will means that you can transcend your nature and nothing else can do it on earth. Nothing can do it in all of existence except for man. So therefore, do we see the power of man? Do we see the power of the soul? It is awesome. Next to God, you have no power. That's true. But besides God, you are the most powerful thing that has ever been made. Why? Because you can say, I want this. No, I want that. That is the power of the divine. It sounds funny, you see. People think that the power of man lies in other things. And this is the most important aspect of all of life. And let me kind of just really crystallize that for The journey of life is nothing more than each one of you finding out what is your true power. That's what it is. When we start out, we think that our power is that we can do whatever we want with the world. We can make as much money as we want. You see, we can be as strong as we want. We can affect as many people as we want. We start out thinking that we control all types of domains. But the fact is, we control none of these domains. It takes an entire lifetime of effort and true understanding to realize that you control nothing, absolutely nothing, except the ability to say, I want this red marker or that blue one. That is the only true power that you have. Because it is the only power granted you by God and which you are truly free. Your freedom lies in that, in the ability to choose, but not in the ability to do or perform. But even that is the most powerful of all things, because nothing even has that. Angels, planets, planetary bodies, stars, animals, these are all what? These are all robots. They obey the law of their instincts or the law of their nature. You are free because you can go against your nature. You can even in a certain sense defy God's will. Nothing can do that. You think an angel can defy God's will? Not in the sp- An angel must do what it's commanded. It has no way of getting out of its what? Of its, of its instruction. An angel is like a computer. It's like a robot which is programmed to do a certain thing. It is a spiritual force in a sense or a spiritual entity that must do what it's commanded. And that it thinks that way. An angel does not think, you see, well, let's see, God said I should do this, but wait a minute, maybe there's another way to do it. That's not even in the angel's head. It's not programmed. The angel can only think of what? Of fulfilling what it must do. And it's not within its consciousness the possibility of even doing something outside of that. But in your mind exists the possibility of doing what outside of that. Saying, I don't want to listen to God. But the entire issue rests where does your power lie? This is the most important question of all life. And I don't know if you grasp the subtlety of this, but that's what God put you here, and that's what He's waiting to see what you do. What God wants to know from the day you are born to the day you die is how you resolve this problem. Where is my power? You see. Because the answer to that question means that in some way you have finally figured out who you are and who he is. And that's the entire purpose of life. There is no other purpose. It is a boundary problem. And the issue is, what do I actually control and what I don't control? 99 out of 100 people run after or attempt to get involved in things in which they have no control. Most of our lives are spent 
involving ourselves in issues and in things where we have no control. None. For example, people have a goal of becoming rich. Whether you become rich or not is absolutely out of your hands. Totally. It doesn't make a difference what you do. If God wants you to be rich, you will be rich. If He doesn't want you to be rich, there is nothing in all of creation you can do to become rich. Nothing. It's an illusion that you think, well, the harder I work, or the more smarter I am, or the better idea I figure out, I'll finally get into it, you see. It is an absolute illusion, and God allows you that illusion. Donald Trump thinks that he is as wealthy as he is because of his own brilliance, and of his own ideas, the art of the deal. As if the deal, making good deals is what does it. But the fact of the matter is, Donald, Donald Trump is rich because God says, Donald Trump, I want you to be a billionaire. That's the only reason. Nothing that Donald Trump ever did contributed to his wealth. Nothing. He was just in the right place at the right time. Because he had to be in that place at that time. You see. That's essentially what it is. Why is that? Because wealth is not something in your power. But it takes a long time to figure this out. But you can figure this out. You see. If you observe your actions in terms of cause and effect relationships and what you do, you can begin to see that there are many times you do something and nothing happens successfully, and sometimes you don't do anything and you become successful. If you observe, you will see that you don't really have a cause and effect relationship to your success. It's not really there, you see. <coughs> you want to believe it's there. You'd love to believe it's there. And your mind pushes yourself to convince yourself that I did it. But if you're really honest with yourself, you'll see you just were in the right place at the right time. And it just happened to take off. That's it. It took off. And many times it just doesn't take off. And there's no reason for it. Sometimes you can be involved in a project that looks like there's no reason. I should succeed. I should have succeeded a thousand times. And you don't. And no one knows why. And sometimes you're involved in projects where there's no reason why you should have made it. And suddenly you're vastly wealthy. It has nothing to do with anything. But the humble person realizes that power, his control is not in that area. So the question is, where is your control? Where is your control? And the answer is, in choosing between the red marker and the purple marker. Now, that may not be a choice of significance, you see. True. <laughs> but the real choice really is in where do you want to consider your power? You see, that's your choice. God will allow you to think that you control other areas. He will allow you the illusion, you see. You can choose to understand what your real power is. That is the goal of all of life, you see. To set a sense of balance. But don't think that's a small decision. The ability to make the decision between two markers is the most sophisticated thing God has ever made, you see. Because it means that you almost transcend him. Almost. And that is an incredible feat. This is the gift of being human. But along with this gift comes a very, very powerful responsibility. And now we get into the frightening aspects of that responsibility. You see. We all want to be little gods. We all want to be incredibly important and we want to feel powerful. So God says to you, okay, I'll let you have it. I'm going to give you free will. And suddenly you have free will and you think, well, so what? What's the difference here? But now you begin to realize 
that this power which God did grant us is the most awesome power of all. Why? Think of this for a second and you'll see something which is very, very interesting. If I have the power to choose between these two and there is nothing in all of existence which can force me one way or another, where does my decision come from? From me. It is something which emanates totally from me. Now, if I am really free, it means that nobody knows what I'm going to choose. Even God does not know. Because what is true freedom? True freedom of choice means that it's not even predictable. Why? Because it cannot be known by cause and effect, you see. If you observe an object in motion, if you know its velocity and its position, you can predict where it's going to be next. You can predict where the planets will be an hour from now. Why? Because their motions are governed by laws of cause and effect. But that which is free is not governed by cause and effect, you see. Because if you are truly free, there is nothing in reality that's going to force you one way or another. So therefore, there's no way anyone could know what you're going to choose. True freedom is beyond cause and effect, just like God is. That's a staggering notion. In the area of choice, you are beyond cause and effect. So that in a certain sense, not even God knows what you're going to choose. Now the fact is, He does know. But His knowledge comes from a different type of aspect, you see. And I don't want to go into that. He does know. But His knowledge does not affect your freedom. So that what God says is, nothing in the world, nothing in all of existence, knows what you're going to choose. If I know it, it's because you and I have a certain type of connection from a different way. But I want you to know, there is nothing that will predict which marker you will choose. No angel, no being in all of existence knows what you're about to do, because you're totally free. That means that when you choose one or the other, and you make the choice, you have created something from nothing. I don't know if you just realized what I just said. The earmark of God is the ability to be magic, to create something from nothing. There was absolutely nothing there, and suddenly there is something which exists. You have just done the exact same thing when you choose. Because since the choice did not exist anywhere in at all, except as it emerged from your ego, so that no one even knew what it would be. You didn't even know what it would be before you chose it. It doesn't lie anywhere. You can't put your finger on it. When it finally emerged, it came from nothing. Literally from nothing. In this sense, you are exactly like God. You can create something from nothing. That is a true divine power. And that's why you are called in the image of God. Because with respect to the power of choice, you are godly. Because you could bring something from nothing. You can take existence from non-existence. You also have that capacity. But only with respect to choice not with respect to objects or things. Only God can create something from nothing. He can make an object from something from nothing. But what you can do is you can create a choice from nothing and be absolutely free. Therefore, you have an extraordinary power. Now you may say, well, okay, this sounds nice, so I can create a choice something from nothing. What does that do? Well, I got news for you. The power to create something from nothing means that you have the power to create, literally. If you have the power to create, you also have the power to destroy. You can take something which exists and put it back into nothing. It works both ways. 
the same. It works both ways. Now the question is, if it does work that way, what can you put back into non-existence? The answer is yourself. Whether you realize it or not, the kind of choice you make, you see, is connected to your being. So that if you make the right choice, you literally form yourself. If you make the wrong choice, you annihilate yourself. That is the true power of what you have. And God stands back and He says, that's what you can do. You cannot create or destroy anything. I do that. But I give you the power to form or annihilate yourself. How? Through the act of creation. What is that act? The act of true free will. That is somewhat frightening. Because suddenly we realize that all of us were born with guns. We were born with weapons. Except that the only position that the gun takes is that it is pointed at ourselves. Therefore, the power that you were given, the privilege, entails an enormous responsibility. In terms of animals, animals are not free. Now, nobody knows what governs animal behavior we don't know when, uh, for example if, you, if a lion sees two for example zells running two zebra in two different directions which one does it go after I don't know nobody knows because we do not know ultimately how an animal thinks nobody knows that but whatever it is there is something instinctively in the animal that allows it to make the choice that automatically programs it for one another for example the animal may look at the two zebra and one of them it knows is weaker or older or sicker and it goes after that one the animal judges in terms of two things what it needs, how hungry it is and how vulnerable the object of the prey is the animal assesses each prey in terms of whether it can get it or not and if there's a choice of two possible victims it will instinctively assess the one that is most likely to lead to success what those criteria I don't know how does an animal know the age of a zebra? I don't know. There's no birth certificate there. So I don't know how that works. But basically, the animal instinctively is able to some way see that. And that's the one it runs after. So if you want to know the criteria in which it chooses, it's obviously the what? The vulnerability of the prey. But it's instinctual. It's instinctual. There is no morality. For example, if an animal is hungry, you see, it is incredibly hungry. And, so, and it sees an object, it will eat the object. There is no such thing as right or wrong. An animal does not have the ability to go against its own impulse. It cannot say, well I want to do this, but this is not right. Because there's another principle that says this is wrong. That's impossible for an animal to consider that. You see, we for example may be very hungry. And you come along and you see some food. And you say, well I can't eat that because it's not kosher. This thinking is not possible for an animal, you see. It's not that an animal does not know what is kosher or not. That's not the problem. Even if the animal knew that, it's irrelevant, you see. Because there's no such thing as counteracting its impulse on the basis of something which is right and wrong. The only thing right for the animal is to what? Follow its instinct, and what is wrong is not to follow it. That's all. I have not discussed yet what the choices are that are supposed to be made. Not really. I'm going to get into that. All I'm simply doing now is describing to you who you are, that's all, and what you can do, the gift that was given to you. What does it mean to be a human being? 
it means to be conscious and number two it means to be free free in terms of choice we have the ability to choose obviously life does not revolve around making a choice between a red marker and a purple marker that's not the purpose of life you see but there is a unique thing is that you can actually choose which one and be totally free of the choice and nothing else can that is your greatness now what I want to do now is to begin to discuss what is the choice that you're supposed to make what is the purpose of existence itself you see that's what I want to discuss and I want to begin to outline for you you see the stages of God's planning in existence what God does in the different stages of existence first on the general level that's what I want to do and to discuss this you see uh, this clearly and then after that what we will do is begin to apply this information to actual history itself to see exactly what is going on down here in reality that accommodates these principles but basically what I said to him now constitutes an important introduction to realize what your uniqueness our problem lies in that we do not really know who we really are we do not know our real greatness we are constantly running after false greatness we are constantly running after something which is not us and which will never be us which cannot be us and we ignore that which is truly us and where the true power lies you see you know what it's like it's like for example you have a race you see you have a race a horse race and you've got ten horses okay and what it is is one horse is pointed in the right direction and the other nine horses are pointed in the opposite direction they all face the wrong way the gun goes off right and suddenly what the door opens and everybody starts running one horse is running this way where the goal is and the other nine are running the other way off the track so the guy says wait a minute where are you guys going it's the wrong race nine out of ten people are in the wrong race they're not on the track you see they will never get to the goal because they're running in an entirely different direction that's the whole concept that's the problem the problem is and the most important problem is where is the race and where is the ultimate goal where is it that is the heart of the question where do I run point me in the right direction most of us spend an enormous amount of time going in the wrong direction and what happens we find out only too late at the end of our lives that we spent an enormous part of our lives running in the wrong direction it is a terrible tragedy an incredible tragedy what I want to do here is to tell you what the right direction you may or may not accept what I say you may or may not believe what I say it doesn't really matter I don't define the race I did not create the race I don't define it but I am very clear what the Torah says what the race is therefore if you choose to devote your life to running in the wrong way you see you are what? at incredible risk because if you are wrong you will have taken almost your entire life and thrown it out why? because not that you weren't running everybody's running you ran the wrong direction it's like going on a highway and suddenly you take a cut off right and then you discover 500 miles later that you took the wrong cut off 
You should have taken the left fork, you took the right fork. How do you feel? <laughs> what? <laughs> Tired. The question then comes, do I have time to go back? You see, and unfortunately, many times we don't. We are on the wrong way. You see. No, the fact is, the fact is, the fact is, the fact is, please, the fact is that even if you take the wrong direction, there is always a way to get back. There is. You see, there is a way to get back. There is a way to get back. But I want you to know that the most serious problem of life is running in the wrong direction. That's the most critical problem. Even though God is all over, not every road leads to God in that sense. Why not? For example, let's say you pick up, you go into a, a store and you buy a can of antifreeze. You sit down, you have to be very thirsty, and you pour yourself a cup of antifreeze. And you begin to drink the antifreeze. What will happen to you? What? It's all over. You freeze up quickly. Right. Now the question is, why? Why should you die just because you, brought, you drank antifreeze? Why? What thing? Because God says, look, I have created a world and I want you to know there are certain things which are harmful. There are certain things that you can swallow or drink that will kill you. It's as simple as that. How will it kill you? It will kill you because I have produced something in the nature of the thing that will kill you. It's as simple as that. If you drink antifreeze, you will almost surely die, depending on the quantity, you see. You can't drink a full gallon of antifreeze and then sit down and pray to God that you live. You had no business drinking the antifreeze to begin with. You should have read the instructions. <laughs> to drink the antifreeze and then to pray to God for forgiveness is ridiculous. Do you see my point? A voice will come out from heaven and say, It is too late. <laughs> it is the same thing. People think that since God is everywhere, all spiritual paths lead to God. That is not true. That is not true. What God says, and that's the point, God says, there are certain things you can do that will lead to me. But I want you to know there are other things that will not lead to me. Not only they won't lead to me, but they will lead you out of existence. And God says, watch yourself. Now you may say, well, how do I know which path leads to you and which leads me out of existence? And God says, read the instructional manual. You know what the instruction manual is called? Who knows what it's called? The Torah. Exactly. The Torah has the specific function of telling you what is and what is not antifreeze. Really what it is. It's, it's a very simple concept. Therefore, if you choose to deny what the Torah says, in a sense, and you choose to run in the wrong direction, you are at risk. You are at incredible risk. Not only that, God is a compassionate being, obviously. So the fact of the matter is, in respect to the Torah, if you go in the wrong direction, God does do everything He can do to save you from killing yourself. That is a fact. In fact, that's really what mercy is. Most people think that mercy is when you pray to God for forgiveness and God says, I forget. That is not what mercy is. Mercy means that what? That God says, even though you are on the road to annihilation, I will do everything possible to save you. Let's use the metaphor. Let's say the guy again drank the antifreeze. 
And he realized after a gallon that it's antifreeze. One thing, the first thing he does. He runs to the phone, he calls Hatzalah. <laughs> or he calls an ambulance. The ambulance comes, grabs the guy, runs to the emergency room. What do they do to him in the emergency room? They pump. Is it a pleasant experience to be pumped? No. It's probably a horrible experience, right? But that's what they need to do to create a saver's life. That pumping is a merciful process. Is it painless? No. It's probably very painful. But that's what mercy is about. Mercy means trying to what? Undo the damage that the person did to himself. <coughs> you see my point? And the world works that way. <coughs> Just like the world works that way in a physical way, that's the way it works on a spiritual way. <coughs> there are things in the world which will kill you. Literally. And there are things in the spiritual world that will kill you if you go in the wrong direction. Therefore, it is the obligation of every human being, the most important thing, to read the instructions. You see, that's what it means to learn Torah. The essence of learning Torah is reading the instructions. To buy something, to buy a medicine, or whatever have you, and not read the instructions, is literally to put yourself at risk. That's what it's all about, you see. Why is it you put yourself at risk? Why? The answer is very simply. Because you have free will. You know what makes us all so dangerous to ourselves? Because we are all so powerful. That's why. If we weren't powerful, if we weren't, for example, so free, if we were like animals in the sense that we have no free will, we would not be dangerous to ourselves. We would simply live out our lives as it's programmed and not the end of it. What makes us so dangerous to ourselves is the fact that we are giants and we are incredibly powerful, you see. Because of the fact that we are free, we can create and annihilate. But since the gun is pointed at us, we are, have the power to literally take us out of existence or put ourselves into eternal existence. This is a frightening power. People with that kind of what? Nature. You have to be extraordinarily careful in terms of what you do. There is no way that I can overestimate, you see, or over-describe this power that you really have. There is absolutely no way. Because you are the most powerful thing that has ever been created.
music. Okay? When you listen to music, let's say you listen to Beethoven's fifth. Which is a nice piece of music. I don't know what your particular individual uh, desire is, but I'm sure that most people agree that Beethoven's fifth is a nice place to start with. You hear the music and you say, this is lovely. This is fantastic, you see. What makes Beethoven's fifth so great? What's the difference between Beethoven's fifth symphony and a lot of noise? Both are sounds, tones, right? They're tones, they're tones, made by different types of instruments. But you can make a lot of noise and that's also sound. So what's the difference between a musical composition and noise? The answer is, a musical composition are tones or sounds in a perfect balance and order. There's a series of notes, each one while blending with each other, moving in a certain direction. There is a symmetry, there is a balance, you see. There's a certain type of wholeness that those notes relate to each other. And when the notes follow each other in a certain way, suddenly what you hear is music and what you feel is the sense of beauty. What is beauty? Beauty is the sense that when you hear the tones, you are perceiving what? How all these notes come together, each one contributing to the whole and forming an incredible what? Wholeness that emerges from it. That's what beauty is. Beauty, therefore, is the perception of unity. It is the perception of unity in the tones. And noise is nothing more than a bunch of what? Tones that have no connection to each other. What is the noise and music? Noise are a series of tones that are unrelated. Because they're unrelated, it sounds like what? Like noise. But when you take all these sounds and you relate them in a way, so that the sounds merge into some kind of a structure, suddenly you realize this is music and then you have a sense of what's called beauty beauty is therefore an appreciation or the beauty of music is nothing more than appreciation of the unity of sound what happens when you see a beautiful landscape or a beautiful picture what happens again you are looking at different lights different shades colors and so on and all of this stuff comes together again to produce an incredible whole it merges into a balance of some sort What's the difference when you look at this and if you look into an ugly scene? The answer again is that a picture which is visual elements, not sound elements, is what? Is the ability of these visual elements to come together where each element in some way connects to the whole. That's what makes a beautiful picture or a beautiful landscape. What about when you eat? If you'll notice, I'm going through the five senses. Hearing, seeing pleasures of the five senses. What about when you eat and you taste something? When you taste something, what are you doing? You're tasting foods. But what exactly is a food? What is great food? You ever notice, what's the ability of a great cook? A great cook is the guy who knows exactly what to combine. That's between a great cook and an amateur. The great cook knows what spices must join what other spices and then exactly in what proportions. And when he puts it together in a certain type of harmony, Presto, what? You find yourself coming back to that restaurant every night. That is beauty also. It's the appreciation of the unity in what? In ingredients. It's the ability to combine ingredients into a structure. But the cook knows how to do it. Just like a composer knows how to do the sound. And like a painter can do that to the visual elements. All things we see are connected to the concept of unity. Thinking, for example. Let's say, for example, you have a course and you're reading a book. You're reading a textbook. And there's a lot of facts over here. You're reading all these facts, for example, in mathematics. You don't know what's going on. Suddenly you're reading it and you say, 
ah, I understand what's going on. And you have this pleasure in the mind. There's a tingling in the brain. What's the pleasure of the mind? The pleasure of the mind is that what? What appear to be separate pieces of information that have no connection. Suddenly it all come together and you realize the underlying principle which unites it all. You see the entire thing like the frame of a building. You see clearly all the basic ideas and how the ideas combine. You understand the connection between the principles and the rules and the details. Suddenly you say, ah, now I understand that. That's the pleasure of the mind. Again, what have you done? You've taken different ideas or conceptual elements and put them together in unity. So we see an amazing thing. We see that the whole foundation of pleasure is nothing more than the ability to appreciate structural unity. Now, if this is true in creation, where God creates and everything He creates has a unity to it, what about if you can suddenly have a direct sensation of God Himself? If this pleasure that you have is nothing more than the stimuli of existence, what happens if you come face to face with the absolute unity itself? Another way to describe God is absolute beauty. That's right. If in some way we can have some idea of what God is, we would have this incredible feeling of suddenly coming to contact with that which is so unified, which is so structured, so perfect, you see, that the mere proximity to it, the even an indirect experience of this, would give us a feeling of awesome beauty. Because that's what God is. God is beauty itself. Why? Because God existence is absolute unity. He is His own existence. And in God's nature, there is such an incredible unity in the sense that He's even beyond even structure. Just to glimpse that in the smallest way is suddenly to glimpse the most incredible beauty possible. What happens when you glimpse beauty? When you hear beautiful music? What do you feel like? It produces simcha. The perception of beauty produces joy or simcha. But if this is true on the physical level, how much more true if you come back to the source of unity itself? That's what I tell you, and which very few people can grasp, is that the greatest pleasure and the greatest simcha of all is to come into direct contact with God Himself. All of you are simply capable of coming into contact with simply the end result of His creation. The physical world, which is the bottom of creation. That's it. And even when you come into contact with these things, you feel great pleasures to such an extent that you don't want to leave the world after 120 years. But the fact of the matter is, you have simply come into contact with physical reality, which is the lowest form of unity. But what happens suddenly if I introduced you into a unity which is much greater than this, you see? Well, instead of hearing Beethoven's fifth, suddenly you came into contact with a type of spiritual music which is the end of unity itself, the most incredible sound possible, you see? Or the most incredible sight possible? Or the most incredible taste, you see? What would happen? What would happen is you wouldn't want to leave that world in any sense. That's why the soul refuses to come down to the physical world. Our problem is that we don't want to leave the physical world. But if you look at it in the reverse, when you're a soul, before you come down to a body at birth, you are in touch with this incredible aspect. You think that you want to then come down into this type of a world? You 
what the relationship is, you know what the, the, the metaphor is? For example, let's say I told you that I'm going to give you an apartment and the apartment I'm going to decorate for you beautifully. You're going to have the best couches, the most beautiful carpets and wallpaper, everything. Except that the apartment is a prison cell, eight feet by eight. <laughs> it's a magnificent thing, right? It's beautifully interior decorated, but it's a prison. Why? That's how the soul feels when it comes down to the world. Why? Because the soul in its spiritual state is not in contact with music or what or paintings. It is in contact with the source of existence itself. It directly can experience that. At that point, that's the most highest level of pleasure in Simcha, beyond anything you can even imagine. So do you think the soul wants to come down into a body where suddenly it can only relate to reality through five senses? Where it can begin to see unity, but without seeing the author? You see? When, for example, you hear Beethoven's script, you may not know Beethoven wrote it, but you know that somebody wrote it. You know that only a human being could have written such incredible music. But many times you can look at the world and look at the universe and refuse to acknowledge that there's an author behind the universe. You see? But the fact of the matter is the author or the creator behind the world, you see, is much greater in his unity than the world itself. The world is diverse and in that diversity there is a unity. But in God there is no diversity, it is an absolute unity. And when you come into any type of contact with that, suddenly you are in contact with the most beautiful thing that is possible in existence. The mere perception of that to make contact with that on the smallest level puts you in a state of incredible simcha automatically if we can't appreciate that because we are condemned in this life simply to what? to what? to realize the beauty as it exists in the lowest form and because this is the only form that we know we think that this is the best that's possible you will be shocked one day when you see that this was the garbage of pleasure the lowest form possible because when you're released from the physical bonds when you're released from the physical prison you are capable of a pleasure and a what and a beauty which surpasses this geometrically on an infinite scale and that's what God has in mind on the soul that's what he has in mind he doesn't have in mind this paltry existence here you have pleasures here you think that God created you went through the entire process of creation so that you can have what? so you can sit down and eat a good rib steak? <laughs> and then be filled and have to take a malat after you finish the job? <laughs> you think God put you down in the world what? so you can buy a beautiful suit of clothes and then have it ripped or torn when you're walking along? you think that this is pleasure? of course not you think God put you here in this world so that you can appreciate certain pleasures and then be filled with pleasures? All pleasures of this world are essentially we have them and then we're satisfied. We don't want it anymore. We're filled. You see. After you eat the entire meal, if I put another meal in front of you, you get nauseous. What happened to the pleasure? That's not pleasure. That's ridiculous. That's a sham. Real pleasure is something that goes on and on and on. And there's no stop because there is no satiation so therefore if you think that this is where it's at you are sadly mistaken when I say about the horses that are running in the wrong direction they are really running in the wrong direction and we begin to understand what that wrong direction means the wrong direction means that as much as you think that you have what? experienced pleasure you haven't seen anything yet and basically that's what Judaism is about 
Judaism is about pleasure. That's right. Sounds funny. Right? Everybody told that Judaism <laughs> is a spiritual religion and really have to divorce itself from pleasure. Well, I tell you that everyone's sadly mistaken. Judaism is about pleasure. But it's about the right kind of pleasure. The pleasure that lasts. See, and the pleasure that really counts. That's what God says. God says you want to be a pleasurable being? Fine. But do it the right way. Don't do it this secondary, inferior way. That's the concept. And in essence, the right kind of pleasure is the pleasure that God is going to give to the soul. That is the purpose of existence. Not bad at the start, is it? Next week, we will begin to discuss what happens to existence from this point on. If this is what it's all about, so how come we're all not happy? Why is it we're not pleasurable? If that was God's intent, right? And He created a soul, so how come I'm miserable all the time? Okay, next week, we will talk about that. <laughs>